Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast. The Appearance Psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to how we look. I'm Nadia, and today, as many of us are starting the new academic year, we will be sharing a presentation series entitled Looking Towards the Future from our recent international conference, Appearance Matters 7. We'll be hearing from nine experts and rising stars in the field discuss what they believe to be the most important priority for the field of appearance research and practice in the next five years. We will hear from Dr. Alex Clark, Dr. Glenn Jankowski, Professor Neva Peran, Dr. Nicholas Stock, Dr. Sarah Riley, Dr. Melissa Atkinson, Dr. Rachel Kalajiro, Dr. Jessica Oliva, and Professor Nicola Rumsey. Each speaker will be introduced in turn by Carl's Dr. Heidi Williamson. Heidi is an expert in the psychological and social impact of living with a visible difference in children. We've invited current leading experts in the field, as well as some of our future rising stars, to share their thoughts on what they think is the most important priority for the field of appearance and body image research and practice in the next five years. So our first presenter is Dr. Alex Clark, consultant clinical psychologist and visiting professor at the Centre for Appearance Research. What do I think is the next big thing? And I am approaching this as a clinician. Um, I'm talking about collaboration here between clinicians and researchers, between research and practice. We've actually heard some very good examples here today, but I've also had individual conversations with people who are frustrated at the point of having done an intervention and thinking about the next stage. So what are the particular things that I think that we could do which might be helpful? First of all... We're behaviour change specialists. One of the things that we can really make a difference, I think, to is to increase research participation and recruitment. I don't know if you've ever been in a clinic and seen a sort of common practice, but there's a tendency to have a pile of, of um, consent and information sheets on your desk, and the conversation goes something like, are oh, they doing some research here? Um, I'll give you the information sheet, which, by the way, is about 100 pages long. And in that, you will hear all about the reasons why you don't have to do it. It won't make any difference to your care if you don't do it, um, and so on. It's all a bit half-hearted, and, and um, if you want to do them, take part in the research, tell the nurse. How different from treating patients as partners in what we're doing and really talking about people in terms of this is important research, we're working here in partnership, this is something that we really hope that you'll help us to do to move things on in the future. So I think a real scope there to increase the numbers to the point where we expect as clinicians to be recruiting into research and we expect as patients to be asked if we'd like to participate. I'd also like to think us about us redefining implementation rather than dissemination as the endpoint of research. What do I mean by that? Well, n normally when we're planning research, when we're thinking about um, getting to the end of it, when we crash to the end of it sometimes with the research assistant's time up just before we finally finish doing the papers, we're thinking about conference presentations and posters, publication in peer-reviewed journals. That wonderful phrase, these findings have implications for clinical practice, but I'm not actually going to tell you what they are. 
you are the one who's going to go away and think about that. How different from what Eric was talking about, having a website with the outcome measures that might be useful, the content of the intervention, the specific detail about what really happened. There are 97 behaviour change techniques. We don't often really describe exactly the ones we've been using. We might apply for further funding. We might engage with the media. We might publish things in an accessible form like our book from the big art study we did a few years ago. But I'd like to move towards a real integrated research planning, including an implementation plan as part of our final reports and publications, as part of what's available perhaps on the web. Describing interventions very clearly, as I've said, really what did you do, providing the websites. And I'd also, and I've been talking to the Healing Foundation about this as part of a piece of work I've been doing recently, I'd like to see funders set targets for supporting positive research findings into the implementation phase. The difficult bit, for, I think, is not getting the initial money to show and demonstrate that an intervention works. It's that next phase when you want to get it into clinical practice and the funders are saying, no, sorry, don't fund this stage. We fund new projects, but we don't fund this really important first stage of, of implementation before it's embedded into care. So we've heard some fantastic examples from researchers at the conference about where people have done this successfully. Eric's wonderful programme of research, the work that Martin's done across Europe, the body programme that um, Emma and Philippa have been doing, reaching hundreds and hundreds of people. But there are also these, these pockets where we're literally stuck and, and want to be getting really effective interventions out into common use. So finally, just to finish, vasocompression, we've known for years how important that is in preventing post-operative complications like DVT. But it's taken the best part of 20 years to get that into common use and to expect to put elastic stockings on. We don't want to see ourselves waiting 20 years to push ahead with the important work we've been hearing about now. So let's get out there, let's investigate the opportunities to embed our findings into clinical intervention and clinical care. Can I now welcome Glenn Jankowski. Glenn is a senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University, expert in critical health psychology, masculinity and body image. We describe body satisfaction as suffering, as distress, in our wonderful conference booklet, as stigma and discrimination. The point, then, is body dissatisfaction is an injustice that we want to undo. We do this through three ways captured by the tripartite influence model. The first way is by changing the individual. We ask the individual to stop comparing themselves to other people, to stop internalising appearance ideals. To, we try to correct their faulty attitudes and beliefs and behaviours around appearance in order to undo the injustice of body dissatisfaction. Such a way, arguably, has led to the development of many silos in our field and more and more terms for the same construct. For instance, body dissatisfaction, I have personally described in my own research as body, low body appreciation, negative body image, body image concerns, body shame, etc. As this guy said in 1981, very aptly, obsessive emphasis on quantified detail without context, on progressively finer and finer measurement of smaller and smaller problems, leaves us knowing more and more about less and less. Recognizing the limitations of this first approach to undo the injustice of body dissatisfaction, some of us have asked who has taught the individual to feel body dissatisfaction? 
We have looked at their immediate context, peers, family members, friends, parents, and tried to change other people. We tell other people, do not, we tell mothers, be good role models, hashtag kiss the mirror, and do not make your child feel unhappy. We tell colleagues not to fat talk in the workplace. Once again, this approach maybe hasn't met the, with the success we have hoped, partly because we've realized that mothers, work colleagues, people have body dissatisfaction themselves, partly because both approaches are placing blame on individuals. So some of us, aware of these limitations, have asked who has taught people to feel body dissatisfied, and we have looked at media representations. Specifically, we have told Dove to stop airbrushing women in their adverts, Mattel to stop making Barbie so thin, Disney to make plus-size princesses. This approach has had some success. We have encouraged these companies to become more profitable if only they change their representations. Mattel is likely to become as profitable as Dove has with its Real Beauty campaign since its new Barbies. But it's limited success. Mattel's new Barbie is still only a UK size eight. Doves still don't feature many women with cellulite or women over 60 in their adverts. Magazines may refuse to airbrush, but they still hire thin and young models. As Bryn Austin pointed out in her wonderful keynote, this is limited by, in the US in particular, by freedom of speech legislation that stops us changing the representations totally. We must therefore ask the question, what has taught the media to engender body dissatisfaction? We are close to the answer. As we have already recognized, a me media is a medium, and our advocacy has addressed companies, Dove, Mattel, Disney. Why don't these companies represent us in our full diversity? Because they must make us insecure, else we couldn't buy their products. Companies, by their very nature, have a profit imperative in which they must prioritize selling over and above combating any injustices, such as body dissatisfaction. So now that we have identified the cause of the injustice, the system, we cannot ignore the other injustices it causes. The urgency of this is exemplified to me, particularly by the use of sweatshops, by the very industries we talk to but ignore that injustice. Fashion sweatshops, Mattel, make their products in sweatshops. That is an injustice that uh, impacts more people and is greater than body dissatisfaction. So the priority for our field in the next five years is to recognize that what we are doing is treating body dissatisfaction as a form of injustice, but it is one among many, and it may not be the most pressing one. It's to recognize the system that creates that injustice and to recognize these injustices intersect. We have, fortunately, many, many trailblazers to follow. Malcolm X, uh, American civil rights leader, demonstrated this in his work fighting the injustice of racism, of poverty, of body dissatisfaction indeed. When he was asking the very same question we are beginning to ask now, who taught you to hate the color of your skin? Who taught you to hate the texture of your hair? Who taught you to hate the size of your nose? Can we now welcome Professor Neva Peran? Neva is from the University of Toronto, expert in women's health, body image and embodiment. I believe that one of the goals we should have for the next five years is to broaden our reading of the body and embodied lives an emerging trend in the field has involved examining a broader range of ways of inhabiting the body, such as functionality, agency, and attunement, and with that, positive ways of inhabiting the body. These shifts will inform our etiological developmental models as well as interventions. However, 
I want to focus this talk on the agenda of enhancing a particular way of reading the body. Reading the body as social text. Social ideologies and structures of power directly shape embodied lives, such that cultural texts are inscribed into and onto bodies. I believe that reading these complex texts will shed further light into embodied distress and guide our interventions in specific ways. Examine this cultural inscription on the body related to skirt length alone, and we have so many more embodied practices, as posted by a young woman on the web, all the way from matronly and prudish to flirty, asking for it, slut and whore. These inscribed social labels reflect adverse cultural ideologies about women and sexuality. The prude slut dichotomy and in addition, the asked for it concept sanctioned by a rape culture. I believe that the multiple social inscriptions on bodies are centrally important for all of us who care about embodied lives. Inevitably, however, when we, for example, professionals, decode the language of the body by holding a particular lens, we take the liberty to define and label what we consider a core issue, a step that comes with powerful implications. Let's take thinness, for example. In this slide, you see my version of a girl's drawing, drawing of herself and of the ideal girl. Consistently, ideal girls are much smaller all around. Girls explain that small is good, and not only in size, but also in comportment, demure with contained needs. Thin and small are two very different discourses. Thin may guide us possibly to fashion, but small to gender relations. Similarly, examine this slide. Do we want here to problematize thinness in fashion? or alternatively problematize health and safety in women's labor and youth labor. Health and safety, we know, are achieved more commonly but those by those who inhabit privileged bodies in terms of gender and social class and race and ethnicity and sexual orientation, situation and ability and disability. Thinking about privileged bodies, going back to the previous slide, the ideal girl represents privilege at the intersection of race, white, class, material, privilege, Gucci, shirt, makeup, and thinness, social class, ability, disability, terms of perfection, sexuality, heterosexualized, uh, but at the same time, disenfranchisement in terms of gender, she's small, demure and she is the object, not the subject of gaze. Okay, reading social text on bodies, I believe, can first clarify the multiple social forces that co-occur and that aggregate to create docile bodies so our etiological theories are more comprehensive and include a broader social critical analysis. Two, 
deepen the understanding of embodied distress such that we can validate challenges youth and others and old people face and people of different backgrounds in inhabiting their body comfortably. And three, align our interventions more than is currently done with the goals of social justice and equity in families, schools, media, the law, and other institutions, so we can work together also through activism and advocacy to nurture environments where all bodies can flourish. I'd now like to welcome Dr. Nicola Stock, Research Fellow at the Centre for Appearance Research. Nicola is an expert in the psychological impact of health conditions which affect appearance, including cleft lip and palate. Okay, so I'm an early career researcher at the Centre for Appearance Research, and as Heidi said, my primary interest is the psychological impact of cleft lip and palate. So I'm coming very much from a visible difference perspective, but I hope that you'll be able to identify with some of the aspects in my talk, regardless of your area of expertise. So in thinking about the top priority for research and practice in the next five years, my immediate instinct was to plead the case for more funding for early career researchers, except then I realized that most of you don't have any funding either, so I'm probably <laughs> pitching to the wrong crowd. So instead, I started thinking about something that would be really uh, creative, um, and perhaps something that you would not have heard about before. Unfortunately, I then realized very quickly that many of the challenges that plagued the generation of researchers before me are still just as relevant today. So coming into the field of appearance psychology, it was very difficult for me to get my head around the state of the literature. We now have so many different constructs that we need an encyclopedia to be able to document all of them. And when you couple that with a tendency for all of those constructs to fluctuate considerably across the lifespan, it can feel a little bit like wading through mud at, for example, Glastonbury Festival. Very slippery and ultimately futile. So it's very understandable then that in our attempts to capture a comprehensive understanding of adjustment, we've applied a multitude of different measures at different time points and with different populations leading to findings which are very difficult to compare across studies. So again, this is not a novel idea. This is not going to surprise any of you. But what is a really real thing is that um, inconclusive research findings have result in a lack of evidence for psychological intervention. At the same time, resources are being squeezed, services are being cut, and psychologists are constantly being told that they need to demonstrate their value. So as an early career researcher, looking at the face of this very scary reality, I considered making a very swift exit. <laughs> uh, but Nikki Romsey wouldn't let me. <laughs> so instead, I'm still here, and I'm thinking about what comes next. So for me, the priority is really about achieving consensus. Achieving consensus between clinicians and researchers, but also with other stakeholder groups as well. We need broad, overarching frameworks which encompass both generic and condition-specific aspects to guide research and practice. We need to agree upon an effective set of appropriate measures and then utilize those measures consistently over time and across teams and perhaps even across conditions. We need qualitative studies and patient involvement exercises to corroborate the relevance and acceptability of these frameworks and measures. And we need to find ways of translating these frameworks and measures across the world 
irrespective of language, culture, and levels of resource. So ultimately, I believe the answer to this challenge lies in our ability to integrate research much more fully into practice, so that taking part in research is the norm for patients rather than the exception. And it can be done. So the work that we've been doing in the UK has resulted in psychologists in every cleft team adopting a conceptual framework that we've designed collaboratively and beginning to integrate the chosen measures into their routine clinical audit. And I cannot tell you what a slog that has been, but the psychologists are telling us that they've already seen a change for the better in their practice as a result of this exercise. So we're now working on adapting this into a tiered approach and so that even the countries with the lowest levels of resource can begin to collect a very basic level of data. And more importantly, that they begin thinking in a more patient-centered way. So if this level of consensus and integrated working could be achieved, large and representative data sets could be collected relatively quickly, and care pathways would become fully evidence-based, patient-informed, and streamlined to make better use of our limited resources so that we can really begin to address the questions that really matter to the patients that we care about that are affected by appearance-altering conditions and their families around the world. And so that poor early career researchers have a chance. I'd now like to welcome Dr. Sarah Riley, reader in psychology from the University of Aberystwyth in Wales. My priority for appearance and body image research practice is giving this man something different to say. So he's called Danny Kelly, he's a BBC radio DJ. I met him on air when I was asked to give a psychologist opinion on banning body shaming adverts on London transport. So Danny made the case that these kinds of body shaming adverts are okay because it makes women, uh, motivates women who don't look like that to exercise and diet. So part of his argument was imagining a fat woman at a bar. She's not being chatted up like the thin pretty women and that motivates her to lose weight. Isn't that a good thing? Well, no, I say to Danny, but he's not convinced. Then a woman phones in and she says, I am that ignored fat woman. It's awful being me. I am so unhappy, and the worst thing is it's my fault. And Danny agrees with her. It seems self-evident to them. Okay, but post-structuralist Michel Foucault challenges us to question these kinds of taken-for-granted understandings, to look where they come from. And from this perspective, I want to talk about neoliberalism, post-feminism, and health. So neoliberalism is about our economy that requires its citizens to think that they should be rational and autonomous and able to transform themselves to meet the changing needs of a market. And that includes transforming themselves into cultural ideals. In healthism, we have the idea that weight is a proxy measure for health and that both health and weight are outcomes of individual lifestyle choices. They represent individual risk management, whatever context they live in. Post-feminism describes a culture in which women are expected to work on their bodies, but this work is constructed as choiceful and empowering. Perfection is a possibility if you're prepared to work for it. Post-feminism is, though, also very uncertain. Women need to make themselves perfect, but definitions of perfection are contradictory. Women must be thin, but not too thin. They must want to work on their bodies, but must love their bodies, too. This creates a world in which women live in a world full of anxiety, comparison, and judgment. And we see this when we ask young women about their lives. So here's some data. There's always someone who judges you for the way you look, always. I just assume, like, oh my gosh, she's judging me. Women like to compare themselves to others, to judge each other on their appearance. Girls constantly judging other people against themselves. It's all to look better than the next girl. 
So neoliberalism, healthism, post-feminism is the sense-making behind the your fault rhetoric. It's the sense-making behind people's increasing turn to invasive technologies to appear normal, to appear acceptable, to meet cultural ideals. But our bodies vary in their individual needs. We have conscious and unconscious drives. We have variations in knowledge, skills, social support, environments that vary in ability to provide safe or healthy opportunities to eat and exercise. We have to negotiate commercial companies that benefit from our body anxieties. We live in a world of contradictory discourses but simplistic health messages that draw on a model of a person that doesn't map onto what we know. People are not rational automatons. Food choices can be complex, not simple. Diets make us fat and bullying and body shaming is not right. So we need a different approach and until we do, just the way Nirvana sang that we are all gay, so are we all that fat woman in the bar? And my priority for us for research and practice is that the next time a woman phones in unhappy about her body and how people respond to her, we've given Danny Kelly something better to say. It's Dr. Melissa Atkinson next from the Centre for Appearance Research. Mel is an expert in body image and eating disorder prevention, in particular evidence-based interventions and mindfulness-based approaches. So I am in the business of body image and eating disorder prevention. So it's a truth universally acknowledged that a researcher in possession of a desire to prevent body image and eating disorder concerns must be in want of a good understanding and target of risk factors. So this has served us pretty well over the recent past. A lot of crucial work has been done in understanding risk factors, leading to successful interventions that target modifiable risk factors such as thin ideal internalisation and body dissatisfaction. This has worked particularly well amongst those considered at risk for these kinds of issues um, within selected or targeted intervention approaches. However, I believe we still should be pushing for the holy grail. We need to be living in a world where we actually have no need for risk reduction interventions. So I'm a big believer in universal prevention, uh, which are offered to people regardless of their risk status. However, traditionally, universal interventions have been deemed uh, to be less effective than targeted interventions, um, which is a, a continual challenge. But I would argue that part of the problem is that we are applying a risk factor framework to our universal interventions, um, which is a little bit unfair given that the scope for change on risk factors is a lot less, it's a, it's a lot more limited in universal samples. So we only get half the picture and we also run the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and concluding that our interventions are ineffective. So what can we do to improve our efforts? Well, I'm advocating for a greater focus on protective factors. Um, but looking at an understanding and incorporating a focus on protective factors and also evaluating protective factors in our prevention interventions. So this includes prevention approaches at the societal, uh, community and individual level. But my particular bent is towards individual factors and I have a particular interest in mindfulness and how that might um, lead to resilience through some of these factors. But we need a better understanding of how they do promote resilience, how they work together and how they interact with risk factors to prevent body image and eating disorder concerns. Something else we really need to prioritise in universal evaluations is to ensure that our follow-up actually includes the greatest period of risk. 
So this will enable us to be able to say whether our interventions actually confer a true prevention effect rather than a risk reduction or early intervention effect. We also need to be still prioritising implementation and dissemination from the outset, preferably on a large scale and with minimal cost. So as researchers, we need to understand the mechanisms for our interventions so we can really tap into the effective components. We need to make sure that our interventions are packaged in a way that's attractive, that has street cred. Um, we might need to use some professional marketers and designers. We need to adopt formats that are current and user-friendly. And if we do all these, we'll maximise our chances for getting buy-in and engagement. And this is particularly important for kind of the recent move towards online or internet-based interventions, which are predominantly self-guided. Another point that's already not new and has already been made is that we need teamwork at all stages of our intervention development, evaluation, dissemination. So we need to bring everyone in on board um, from the end users in co-creating the materials to collaborating with community and industry partners and involving advocacy groups and public figures as well to create a groundswell. And my final point for priority areas is to move towards an integrated and coordinated approach to prevention interventions across all development periods, all access points um, and around the globe. So this is going to require more work to reach a consensus about what interventions work for who and when, and to be able to have some way of directing traffic in order to kind of maximise the impact we can have. So this means more sharing and collaborating and potentially arguing um, in order to bring that to fruition. Dr Rachel Calagero next. Reader in psychology from Kent University, expert in body image, self-objectification and social justice issues. There are a number of content areas that I think are critical to take forward, but I think a key priority for the field is to tie our research more closely to activism. Specifically, we might ask ourselves how activism can inform our work and how our work can inform activism. Activism can be defined quite broadly as actively working for social and political causes and encouraging other people to work for those causes, and this can include volunteerism and many other actions that benefit other people, communities, and society at large. Activism builds partnerships. Activism is about connection, and it's about community. And it is empowering for individuals and groups, and it's fundamental to social change. I see three ways in which activism can become more central in our work. First, appearance factors can influence activism. For example, some of my research has linked higher self-objectification in women to more support for the status quo and less engagement in gender-based social activism. This research has shed light on various appearance-related experiences that psychologically dampen motivation for social change. We need to investigate these sort of relations in order to better understand how beauty ideals and pressures, specifically pressures to engage in beauty work, can redirect pursuits away from activism. And when our attention is redirected away from activism or so various kinds of social action, it's redirected away from changing the very beauty culture and the very pressures that underpin these beauty ideals and the problem. And further, some appearance-related experiences may psychologically strengthen motivation for social change. For example, recent research by Laurel Watson and colleagues has shown that a commitment to social change by women 
buffers them against the negative impact of sexist and sexually objectifying experiences on self-silencing. So in my view, motivation for and participation in activism should be outcomes of interest to us in the area of appearance research. Second, activism can influence appearance factors and be a powerful tool for healing. An excellent example is the work by Carmen Cool, a psychotherapist and educator who many of you in the audience will know and love. Carmen engages youth as activists in the Boulder Youth Alliance Program in Boulder, Colorado, and trains them to be body ambassadors who have gone on to transform cultural attitudes and beliefs about weight, appearance, bullying, and body image in schools around Boulder, and also lobby for anti-discrimination policies in local schools and beyond. Activism in this context shifts the emphasis away from raising their self-esteem to increasing their power and to finding their individual and collective voice, both of which are lost through objectification and oppression. In my view, engagement in activism allows people to embody the social change they wish to see in the world, and we should continue to investigate how this works and how we might widen the delivery of these opportunities. Third, research is a form of activism. Massey and Barreras in 2013 introduced the concept of impact validity, which refers to the extent to which research has the potential to play a role in social and political change or is useful as a tool for advocacy or activism. In the opening keynote presentation, when Bryn, um, when she asked us to think about our own research and how it would make a difference in three to five years, she was asking us to reflect on the impact validity of our work. Research-led activism and advocacy is a way to directly apply science to solving social problems. An excellent example is the work by Tomi Ann Roberts, co-author of Objectification Theory, who uses psychological science to advocate for reproductive body and gender justice in the media, courtroom, classroom, and beyond. Backed by psychological science, Sigrun Daniels' daughter changed the Icelandic constitution to protect against appearance discrimination and has written books for a positive body image for children. The impact validity of our work is just as important as the traditional criteria for evaluating the rigor of research. We have to be transparent about the fact that research is never apolitical. We will bring our own ideological assumptions to the table. I'm not neutral, for example, on the consequences of the objectification of women. But I can still do, and we do, methodologically rigorous research. So in my view, advocacy and activism are legitimate companions to science. The potential impact of our work is what makes the research worth doing for many of us, and we should embrace this partnership instead of resisting it, and work on creative ways of bringing our research to the stakeholders' table with whatever resources and networks we have at our disposal. Every bit of activism adds fuel to the fire, and we can all be stoking the flames. I like how Alex referred in her first talk to us as behavior change specialists, and I'd like to think we're uniquely positioned to be social change specialists as well. I'd now like to welcome Dr. Jessica Oliva, postdoctoral researcher from the University of Maastricht, expert in body image, eating and weight disorders and embodiment. I would like to start by asking you to take 20 seconds to think about how you would describe your own body. And the timer starts now.
If you're like most people we've asked this question to, your thoughts about your body, or at least the first thoughts, might have focused on aspects such as your body weight, the number on the scale, your body shape, or your muscularity. And it's likely that these thoughts were not particularly positive. Now I'd again like to give you 20 seconds to think about how you would describe your body, but this time I would like you to think about all of the things that your body can do. Again, the timer starts now. So what I just asked you to do is to describe your body functionality, which basically refers to all of the things that your body can do rather than how your body looks. In our research so far, when we've asked people to describe what their bodies can do, we tend to see a diverse range of answers. For instance, referring to bodily senses, such as being able to smell, to physical capacities, for instance, CrossFit, um, to internal processes, such as being able to digest food, to communications with other people, such as me standing here using hand gestures, to creative endeavors, such as playing an instrument, or to self-care, such as being able to shower and bathe. In describing your body functionality, you might have therefore realized that your thoughts about your body were much more diverse and might have been more positive. So research from our lab has also shown that focusing on your body functionality can lead to improved body appreciation and greater body evaluation or body satisfaction. In addition, we've also shown that focusing on body functionality can reduce self-objectification, so uh, reducing the tendency to see yourself as an aesthetic object. Interestingly, it seems that not only a lot of people, but also the body image literature uh, can be kind of biased when it comes to body focus. We seem to have blinders on and sometimes forget that the body, and therefore also body image, concerns not only appearance, but also function. And of course, this isn't necessarily a surprise when we consider um, all of the images that we've seen in the talks in the past few days, uh, showing the overemphasis of appearance in our culture. Um, and it's also not a surprise when we consider the uh, vast amount of people who are unhappy with their physical appearance. However, this bias of focusing predominantly on appearance could be limiting our scope of vision and inspiration in our research. Therefore, my suggestion for the coming years of body image research would be to break out of the appearance box and explore body image and experiences related to body image, not only from the perspective of physical appearance, but also considering body functionality. After all, there are still so many questions to be answered. For instance, how does focusing on body functionality lead to improvements in body image? Another example is how do various target groups think and feel about their body functionality and might focusing on body functionality benefit them as well? So for instance, women with anorexia or, or people with anorexia or people suffering from chronic pain. Focusing on body functionality could lead to a reduction in the over-evaluation of appearance that is said to maintain anorexia or focusing on body functionality in a broader sense could encourage people with chronic pain to see how their body helps them to lead a fulfilling life despite having pain. 
Another important question is how does thoughts about body functionality and thoughts about appearance, how do they influence one another? And does uh, improvements in body functionality satisfaction necessarily lead to improvements in appearance satisfaction? And furthermore, how can body functionality appreciation be measured? That's very important for research. Um, this is something that Dr. Tilke and Dr. Kron von Diest and I are working on. So hopefully at the next Appearance Matters conference, we will have a great questionnaire ready for you. So as you can see, there are many interesting and important questions that we can still ask with regard to body functionality. And I'm sure there are numerous questions that you can think of that I necessarily haven't thought of yet. In other words, I hope I've inspired you to think a bit more about body functionality in your own uh, current and future research. If I have, please get in touch with me. I'm always happy to help and think along uh, about anything related to functionality and body image. And finally, Professor Nicola Rumsey, OBE. Nikki is co-director at the Centre for Appearance Research, expert in the psychosocial impact of a visible difference, as well as many other things. <laughs> All of us who've been here this, this um, conference will be in absolutely no doubt that we live in a world in which the majority of young people and adults are unhappy in their skins. These are having damaging effects psychologically, Individual perceptions of themselves and other people are being damaged. More and more people are feeling inadequate. More and more people feeling that they can't match up to the images and they're feeling different. And worse still, they're beginning to, to, to really believe that cosmetic surgery and Botox are the answer, that that's what's going to deliver the solution. And if I were to start on the impacts of all of those pressures on people with visible differences, then the, there would be no hope in me finishing in five minutes. One of the things I've learned a lot from colleagues in CAR is the impact of social media, and we've heard a lot about that this week. And I'm really concerned about the fact that people now feel that their real selves are not good enough to be posted on social media. So we now have a situation where people are spending up to an hour preparing themselves for a selfie, and there are 93 million selfies posted every day. The public health impacts are huge. Bryn left us in no doubt of any of that, and those of us working in the field are now very conversant with the impacts in terms of uptake of smoking, disordered eating, dysfunctional relationship with exercise, and many other things. For large parts of my career, I've felt that this is a tidal wave. I've felt that there are so many strong forces coming from everywhere that it's really difficult to know where to start. Big businesses are in it for lots of money, Governments are afraid to act, even though countless inquiries have said that they need to, because they worry about losing the income from the beauty sector and the cosmetic surgery sector. And that's led a lot of us working in the field to occasional points of despair, where we feel like we'd really, really like to help, but we just don't know where to start. And I think it's led some researchers to pull in their horns and to assume the traditional approach that psychologists do, which is to focus on the minutia. And one of the things that I've always had a bit of a struggle with in psychology, and in particular health psychology, my own discipline, is that focus on the minutia. Because, of course, we need good evidence and good research to back up what we do. We're all researchers, after all. But some researchers spend their whole careers trying to decide which way an arrow points between two boxes. And I find that deeply disturbing. And I also think that it does quite a lot of harm. 
It is a comfort blanket, of course, because that's what we're trained to do. And we've always been taught that we need to be credible and to have evidence-based research. But as Nikki said so eloquently earlier on, we drown new researchers and newcomers to the field in a ridiculous plethora of constructs. Not only that, even within our own research center with two epistemologies of research, we talk about very similar things, but we call them by different names. And Nikki was very modest in not mentioning the fact that her review of measures used in Cleflit and Palette, and is called a very affectionately the stockogram, um, is a really graphic illustration of how many measures have been used to try and work out what's happening in cleft. Um, so it takes new researchers years to get to grips with this, and these are years in which they could very gainfully be doing other things. So what's the solution to all these problems? Well, we've had some really great ideas about solutions this week, and the key theme for me to emerge is that we really need to think big. And to do this, we need to boldly go, or is it go boldly? Uh, it really should be go boldly, I'm sure. And as Nikki said, we really do need to agree on our constructs and measures and methods, because until we do that, large tracts of conferences are going to be spent with people with arrows going in various directions, and we should be doing other things. And I really feel that we now have the tools to move forward. I've been massively impressed by the goodwill. The panel was really amazing and seminal, and there were so many people trying to do this from different angles, and pretty much everyone who's given a talk this afternoon has mentioned this too. So the industry is beginning to acknowledge the vulnerability of their consumers. Healthcare professionals are interested. We've managed to influence cleft and burn care, and it's taken a long time, but we know how to do it now, and we need to get on with that. And some politicians, at least, are interested in cost savings in relation to public health. So we do need to work together, but it isn't for the faint-hearted, and all of us need to do something about it. Carr and most of the people at this conference are really committed to applied research, but there's a big difference from making recommendations, as Alex said, at the end of a project into getting that research into practice. And I think we've really got to think about the training we provide for early career and mid-career researchers, and also for old dogs like me, because it is hard for us to get out of our boxes. It is hard for us to learn new skills, and we all need to do that. If we're going to make a real difference, and that's why most of us are here, then we need to think about understanding how communication works, how influence works, how persuasion works. We need to learn how to work using the agendas of these big, powerful partners that we've now acquired, because if we carry on using our own agendas to drive our research, we're going to miss that boat and the tidal wave will have engulfed everyone. So it's time to roll up our sleeves and get on with it. Um, we all need to play a part in the big picture. We need good research, but this is about so much more. It's about the training that I've been mentioning. It's about becoming comfortable, about working in big groups. It's about strong connections and networking with industry and politicians and new sources of funding. Perhaps we should try crowdfunding. There's such huge goodwill and strength of feeling now. Perhaps we could get funding for our endeavours that way. It really is time that we all grasp the nettle and make sure that all of our research teams are fit for purpose, both as individuals and as groups. It's going to be hard, and if we roll our sleeves up, it, the nettle is going to hurt even more. But never mind, let's do it. Many thanks to all our presenters. Um, we set you quite a challenge, and you accepted so enthusiastically. 
and you've provided us with some inspiring, thought-provoking presentations. Remember, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please take a minute to rate us on iTunes. Thanks to all our presenters for giving us permission to share their insightful talks. And, as this will be our last episode related to the Appearance Matters Conference, a big final thank you to our conference sponsors, the Healing Foundation, the University of the West of England and the Dove Self-Esteem Project. Thanks also goes to David Inskow for our theme music.